The Boats of the Glen Carrig by William Hope Hodgson. Being an account of their adventures in the strange places of the earth after the foundering of the good ship Glen Carrig through striking upon a hidden rock in the unknown seas to the southward, as told by John Winterstraw, gentleman, to his son James Winterstraw in the year 1757, and by him committed very properly and legibly to manuscript. Chapter 15 Aboard the Hulk Now, when it came to my watch, that which I took in company with the big seaman, the moon had not yet risen, and all the island was vastly dark, save the hilltop, from which the fires blazed in a score of places, and very busy they kept us, supplying them with fuel. Then, when maybe the half of our watch had passed, the big seaman, who had been to feed the fires upon the weed side of the hilltop, came across to me and bade me come and put my hand upon the lesser rope, for that he thought they in the ship were anxious to haul it in so that they might send some message across to us. At his words I asked him, very anxiously, whether he had perceived them waving a light, the which we had arranged to be our method of signaling in the night, in the event of such being needful. But to this he said that he had seen naught, and by now, having come near to the edge of the cliff, I could see for myself, and so perceived, that there was none signaling to us from the hulk. Yet, to please the fellow, I put my hand upon the line, which we had made fast in the evening to a large piece of rock, and so immediately I discovered that something was pulling on it, hauling and then slackening, so that it occurred to me that the people in the vessel might be indeed wishful to send us some message and at that, to make sure, I ran to the nearest fire, and lighting a tuft of weed, waved it thrice. But there came not any answering signal from those in the ship, and at that I went back to feel at the rope to assure myself that it had not been the pluck of the wind upon it. But I found that it was something very different from the wind, something that plucked with all the sharpness of a hooked fish, only that it had been a mighty great fish to have given such tugs. And so I knew that some vile thing, out in the darkness of the weed, was fast to the rope. And at this there came the fear that it might break it. And then a second thought, that something might be climbing up to us along the rope. And so I bade the big seaman stand ready with his great cutlass, whilst I ran and waked the bosun. And this I did, and explained to him how that something meddled with the lesser rope, so that he came immediately to see for himself how this might be. And when he had put his hand upon it, he bade me go and call the rest of the men, and let them stand round by the fires, for that there was something abroad in the night, and we might be in danger of attack. But he and the big seamen stayed by the end of the rope, watching so far as the darkness would allow, and ever and anon feeling the tension upon it. Then, suddenly, it came to the boatswain to look to the second line, and he ran, cursing himself for his thoughtlessness, 
but because of its greater weight and tension, he could not discover for certain whether anything meddled with it or not. Yet he stayed by it, arguing that if Ott touched the smaller rope, then might something do likewise with the greater, only that the small line lay along the weed, whilst the greater one had been some feet above it when the darkness had fallen over us, and so might be free from any prowling creatures. And thus, maybe an hour passed, and we kept watch and tended the fires, going from one to another, and presently, coming to that one which was nearest to the bosun, I went over to him, intending to pass a few minutes in talk. But as I drew nigh to him, I chanced to place my hand upon the big rope, and at that I exclaimed in surprise, for it had become much slacker than when last I had felt it in the evening, and I asked the bosun whether he had noticed it, whereat he felt the rope and was almost more amazed than I had been, for when last he had touched it, it had been taut and humming in the wind. Now, upon his discovery, he was much in fear that something had bitten through it, and called to the men to come all of them and pull upon the rope, so that he might discover whether it was indeed parted. But when they came and hauled upon it, they were unable to gather in any of it, whereat we felt all of us mightily relieved in our minds, though still unable to come at the cause of its sudden slackness. And so, a while later, there rose the moon, and we were able to examine the island and the water between it, and the weed continent, to see whether there was anything stirring. Yet neither in the valley, nor on the faces of the cliffs, nor in the open water could we perceive aught living. And as for anything among the weed, it was small use trying to discover it among all that shaggy blackness. And now, being assured that nothing was coming at us, and that so far as our eyes could pierce, there climbed nothing upon the ropes. The bosun bade us get turned in, all except those whose time it was to watch. Yet before I went into the tent, I made a careful examination of the big rope, the which did also the bosun, but could perceive no cause for its slackness, though this was quite apparent in the moonlight, the rope going down with greater abruptness than it had done in the evening. And so we could but conceive that they and the hulk had slacked it for some reason, and after that we went to the tent, and a further spell of sleep. In the early morning we were waked by one of the watchmen, coming into the tent to call the bosun, for it appeared that the hulk had moved in the night, so that its stern was now pointed somewhat towards the island. At this news we ran all of us from the tent to the edge of the hill, and found it to be indeed as the man had said, and now I understood the reason of that sudden slackening of the rope. For, after withstanding the stress upon it for some hours, the vessel had at last yielded and slewed its stern towards us, moving also to some extent bodily in our direction. And now we discovered that a man in the lookout place in the top of the structure was waving a welcome to us, at which we waved back. And then the bosun bade me haste and write a note to know whether it seemed to them likely that they might be able to heave the ship clear of the weed. And this I did, greatly excited within myself at this new thought, as indeed was the bosun himself and the rest of the men.
For could they do this, then how easily solved were every problem of coming to our own country. But it seemed too good a thing to have come true, and yet I could but hope. And so, when my letter was completed, we put it up in the little oilskin bag, and signaled to those in the ship to haul in upon the line. Yet when they went to haul, there came a mighty splather amid the weed, and they seemed unable to gather in any of the slack. And then, after a certain pause, I saw the man in the lookout point something, and immediately afterwards there belched out in front of him a little puff of smoke, and presently I caught the report of a musket, so that I knew that he was firing at something in the weed. He fired again, and yet once more, and after that they were able to haul in upon the line. And so I perceived that his fire had proved effectual, yet we had no knowledge of the thing at which he had discharged his weapon. Now, presently, they signaled to us to draw back the line, the which we could do only with great difficulty. And then the man in the top of the superstructure signed to us to vast hauling, which we did, whereupon he began to fire again into the weed, though with what effect we could not perceive. Then, in a while, he signaled to us to haul again, and now the rope came more easily, yet still with much labor, and a commotion in the weed over which it lay and in places sank. And so at last, as it cleared the weed because of the lift of the cliff, we saw that a great crab had clutched it, and that we hauled it towards us, for the creature had too much obstinacy to let go. Perceiving this, and fearing that the great claws of the crab might divide the rope, the boatswain caught up one of the men's lances and ran to the cliff edge, calling to us to pull in gently and put no more strain upon the line than need be. And so, hauling with great steadiness, we brought the monster near to the edge of the hill, and there, at a wave from the boatswain, stayed our pulling. Then he raised the spear and smote at the creature's eyes, as he had done on a previous occasion, and immediately it loosed its hold and fell with a mighty splash into the water at the foot of the cliff. Then the boatswain bade us haul in the rest of the rope until we should come to the packet, and in the meantime he examined the line to see whether it had suffered harm through the mandibles of the crab. Yet beyond a little chafe it was quite sound. And so we came to the letter, which I opened and read, finding it to be written in the same feminine hand which had indicted the others. From it we gathered that the ship had burst through a very thick mass of the weed which had compacted itself about her, and that the second mate, who was the only officer remaining to them, thought there might be a good chance to heave the vessel out, though it would have to be done with great slowness, so as to allow the weed to part gradually, otherwise the ship would but act as a gigantic rake to gather up weed before it, and so form its own barrier to clear water. And after this there were kind wishes and hopes that we had spent a good night, the which I took to be prompted by the feminine heart of the writer, and after that I fell to wondering whether it was the captain's wife who acted as scribe. Then I was waked from my pondering by one of the men crying out that they in the ship had commenced to heave again upon the big rope, and for a time I stood and watched it rise slowly as it came to tautness. I had stood there a while, watching the rope, when suddenly there came a commotion amid the weed, about two-thirds of the way to the ship, 
and now I saw that the rope had freed itself from the weed, and clutching it were maybe a score of giant crabs. At this sight some of the men cried out their astonishment, and then we saw that there had come a number of men into the lookout place in the top of the superstructure, and immediately they opened a very brisk fire upon the creatures, and so by ones and twos they fell back into the weed, and after that the men in the hulk resumed their heaving, and so in a while had the rope some feet clear of the surface. Now, having tautened the rope so much as they thought proper, they left it to have its due effect upon the ship, and proceeded to attach a great block to it. Then they signaled to us to slack away on the little rope until they had the middle part of it, and this they hitched around the neck of the block, and to the eye in the strop of the block they attached a bosun's chair, and so they had ready a carrier, and by this means we were able to haul stuff to and from the hulk without having to drag it across the surface of the weed, being indeed the fashion in which we had intended to haul ashore the people in the ship. But now we had the bigger prospect of salvaging the ship herself, and further, the big rope, which acted as support for the carrier, was not yet of a sufficient height above the weed continent for it to be safe to attempt to bring any ashore by such means. And now that we had hopes of saving the ship, we did not intend to risk parting the big rope by trying to attain such a degree of tautness as would have been necessary at this time to have raised its bite to the desired height. Now, presently, the boatswain called out to one of the men to make breakfast, and when it was ready we came to it, leaving the man with the wounded arm to keep watch. Then, when we had made an end, he sent him, that had lost his fingers, to keep a lookout whilst the other came to the fire and ate his breakfast. And in the meanwhile the boatswain took us down to collect weed and reeds for the night, and so we spent the greater part of the morning and when we had made an end of this, we returned to the top of the hill to discover how matters were going forward. Thus we found from the one at the lookout that they in the hulk had been obliged to heave twice upon the big rope to keep it off the weed, and by this we knew that the ship was indeed making a slow sternway towards the island, slipping steadily through the weed, and as we looked at her, it seemed almost that we could perceive that she was nearer. But this was no more than imagination, for at most she could not have moved more than some odd fathoms. Yet it cheered us greatly, so that we waved our congratulations to the man who stood in the lookout in the superstructure, and he waved back. Later we made dinner, and afterwards had a very comfortable smoke, and then the boatswain attended to our various hurts. And so, through the afternoon, we sat upon the crest of the hill overlooking the hulk, and thrice had they in the ship to heave upon the big rope, and by evening they had made near thirty fathoms towards the island, the which they told us in reply to a query which the boatswain desired me to send them, several messages having passed between us in the course of the afternoon, so that we had the carrier upon our side. Further than this, they explained that they would tend the rope during the night so that the strain would be kept up, and, more, this would keep the ropes off the weed.
And so, the night coming down upon us, the bosun bade us light the fires about the top of the hill, the same having been laid earlier in the day, and thus our supper having been dispatched, we prepared for the night. And all through it there burned lights aboard the hulk, the which proved very companionable to us in our times of watching. And so, at last came the morning, the darkness having passed without event. And now, to our huge pleasure, we discovered that the ship had made great progress in the night, being now so much nearer that none could suppose it a matter of imagination, for she must have moved nigh sixty fathoms nearer to the island, so that now we seemed able almost to recognize the face of the man in the lookout, and many things about the hulk we saw with greater clearness, so that we scanned her with a fresh interest. Then the man in the lookout waved a morning greeting to us, of which we returned very heartily, and even as we did so there came a second figure beside the man, and waved some white matter, perhaps a handkerchief, which is like enough, seeing that it was a woman. And at that we took off our head coverings, all of us, and shook them at her. And after this we went to our breakfast, having finished which, the boatswain dressed our hurts, and then setting the man, who had lost his fingers, to watch. He took the rest of us, excepting him that was bitten in the arm, down to collect fuel, and so the time passed until near dinner. When we returned to the hilltop, the man upon the lookout told us that they in the big ship had heaved not less than four separate times upon the big rope, the which, indeed, they were doing at that present minute, and it was very plain to see that the ship had come nearer even during the short space of the morning. Now, when they had made an end of tautening the rope, I perceived that it was, at last, well clear of the weed through all its length, being at its lowest part nigh twenty feet above the surface. And at that a sudden thought came to me which sent me hastily to the bosun, for it had occurred to me that there existed no reason why we should not pay a visit to those aboard the hulk. But when I put the matter to him, he shook his head, and for a while stood out against my desire. But presently, having examined the rope and considering that I was the lightest of any in the island, he consented, and at that I ran to the carrier which had been hauled across to our side and got me into the chair. Now the men, so soon as they perceived my intention, applauded me very heartily, desiring to follow, but the boatswain bade them be silent. And after that he lashed me into the chair with his own hands, and then signaled to those in the ship to haul upon the small rope, he in the meanwhile checking my descent towards the weeds by means of our end of the hauling line. And so, presently, I had come to the lowest part where the bite of the rope dipped downward in a bow towards the weed, and rose again to the mizzenmast of the hulk. Here I looked downward with somewhat fearful eyes, for my weight on the rope made it sag somewhat lower than seemed to me comfortable, and I had a very lively recollection of some of the horrors which that quiet surface hid. Yet I was not long in this place, for they in the ship, perceiving how the rope let me nearer to the weed than was safe, pulled very heartily upon the hauling line, and so I came quickly to the hulk. Now, as I drew nigh to the ship, the men crowded upon a little platform which they had built in the superstructure somewhat below the broken head of the mizzen. 
And here they received me with loud shears and very open arms, and were so eager to get me out of the boatswain's chair that they cut the lashings, being too impatient to cast them loose. Then they led me down to the deck, and here, before I had knowledge of aught else, a very buxom woman took me into her arms, kissing me right heartily, at which I was greatly taken aback. But the men about me did not but laugh, and so in a minute she loosed me, and there I stood, not knowing whether to feel like a fool or a hero, but inclining rather to the latter. Then, at this minute, there came a second woman who bowed to me in a manner most formal, so that we might have been met in some fashionable gathering rather than in a castaway hulk in the lonesomeness and terror of that weed-choked sea. And at her coming all the mirth of the men died out of them, and they became very sober, whilst the buxom woman went backwards for a piece and seemed somewhat abashed. Now, at all this, I was greatly puzzled and looked from one to another to learn what it might mean, but in the same moment the woman bowed again and said something in a low voice touching the weather, and after that she raised her glance to my face so that I saw her eyes, and they were so strange and full of melancholy that I knew on the instant why she spoke and acted in so unmeaning a way, for the poor creature was out of her mind. And when I learnt afterwards that she was the captain's wife and had seen him die in the arms of a mighty devilfish, I grew to understand how she had come to such a pass. Now for a minute after I had discovered the woman's madness, I was so taken aback as to be unable to answer her remark. But for this there appeared no necessity, for she turned away and went aft towards the saloon stairway, which stood open, and here she was met by a maid very bonny and fair, who led her tenderly down from my sight. Yet in a minute this same maid appeared and ran along the decks to me, and caught my two hands and shook them, and looked up at me with such roguish playful eyes that she warmed my heart, which had been strangely chilled by the greeting of the poor madwoman and she said many hearty things regarding my courage, to which I knew in my heart I had no claim. But I let her run on, and so presently, coming more to possession of herself, she discovered that she was still holding my hands, the which, indeed, I had been conscious of the while with a very great pleasure. But at her discovery she dropped them with haste, and stood back from me a space, so that there came a little coolness into her talk. Yet this lasted not long, for we were both of us young, and, I think, even thus early we attracted one to the other, though apart from this there was so much that we desired each to learn that we could not but talk freely, asking question for question and giving answer for answer. And thus a time passed in which the men left us alone and went presently to the capstan, about which they had taken the big rope, and at this they toiled a while, for already the ship had moved sufficiently to let the line fall slack. Presently, the maid, whom I had learnt was niece to the captain's wife, and named Mary Madison, proposed to take me the round of the ship, to which proposal I agreed very willingly. But first I stopped to examine the mizzen stump, and the manner in which the people of the ship had stayed it, the which they had done very cunningly. And I noted how that they had removed some of the superstructure from about the head of the mast so as to allow passage for the rope, without putting a strain upon the superstructure itself. Then, when I had made an end upon the poop, she led me down onto the main deck, and here I was very greatly impressed by the prodigious size of the structure which they had built about the hulk, and the skill with which it had been carried out, 
the supports crossing from side to side and to the decks in a manner calculated to give great solidity to that which they upheld. Yet I was very greatly puzzled to know where they had gotten a sufficiency of timber to make so large a matter, but upon this point she satisfied me by explaining that they had taken up the tween decks and used all such bulkheads as they could spare, and further that there had been a good deal among the dunnage which had proved usable. And so we came at last to the galley, and here I discovered the buxom woman to be installed as cook, and there were in with her a couple of fine children, one of whom I guessed to be a boy of maybe some five years, and the second a girl scarce able to do more than toddle. At this I turned and asked Mistress Madison whether these were her cousins, but in the next moment I remembered that they could not be, for, as I knew, the captain had been dead some seven years. Yet it was the woman in the galley who answered my question, for she turned and, with something of a red face, informed me that they were hers, at which I felt some surprise, but supposed that she had taken passage in the ship with her husband. Yet in this I was not correct, for she proceeded to explain that, thinking they were cut off from the world for the rest of this life, and falling very fond of the carpenter, they had made it up together to make a sort of marriage, and had gotten the second mate to read the service over them. She told me then how that she had taken passage with her mistress, the captain's wife, to help with her niece, who had been but a child when the ship sailed, for she had been very attached to them both, and they to her, and so she came to an end of her story, expressing a hope that she had done no wrong by her marriage, as none had been intended. And to this I made answer, assuring her that no decent-minded man could think the worse of her, but that I, for my part, thought rather the better, seeing that I liked the pluck which she had shown. At that she cast down the soup ladle, which she had in her fist, and came towards me, wiping her hands, but I gave back, for I shamed to be hugged again, and before Mistress Mary Madison, and at that she came down to a stop and laughed very heartily, but all the same called down a very warm blessing upon my head for which I had no cause to feel the worse, and so I passed on with the captain's niece. Presently, having made the round of the hulk, we came aft again to the poop, and discovered that they were heaving once more upon the big rope, the which was very heartening, proving as it did that the ship was still a move. And so, a little later, the girl left me, having to attend to her aunt, now, whilst she was gone, the men came all about me, desiring news of the world beyond the weed continent, and so for the next hour I was kept very busy, answering their questions. Then the second mate called out to them to take another heave upon the rope, and at that they turned to the capstan, and I with them, and so we hove it taut again, after which they got about me once more, questioning, for so much seemed to have happened in the seven years in which they had been imprisoned. And then, after a while, I turned to and questioned them on such points as I had neglected to ask Mistress Madison, and they discovered to me their terror and sickness of the weed continent, its desolation and horror, and the dread which had beset them at the thought that they should all of them come to their ends without sight of their homes and countrymen. Now, about this time, I became conscious that I had grown very empty, for I had come off to the hulk before we had made our dinner, and had been in such interest since that the thought of food had escaped me, for I had seen none eating in the hulk, they, without doubt, having dined earlier than my coming. 
but now being made aware of my state by the grumbling of my stomach, I inquired whether there was any food to be had at such a time. And at that, one of the men ran to tell the woman in the galley that I had missed my dinner, at which she made much ado, and set to and prepared me a very good meal, which she carried aft and set out for me in the saloon. And after that, she sent me down to it. Presently, when I had come near to being comfortable, there chanced a lightsome step upon the floor behind me, and turning, I discovered that Mistress Madison was surveying me with a roguish and somewhat amused air. At that I got hastily to my feet, but she bade me sit down, and therewith she took a seat opposite, and so bantered with me with a gentle playfulness that was not displeasing to me, and at which I played so good a second as I had ability. Later I fell to questioning her, and among other matters discovered that it was she who acted as scribe for the people in the hulk, at which I told her that I had done likewise for those on the island. After that our talk became somewhat personal, and I learnt that she was near on to nineteen years of age, whereat I told her that I had passed my twenty-third. And so we chatted on, until, presently, it occurred to me that I had better be preparing to return to the island and I rose to my feet with this intention, yet feeling that I had been very much happier to have stayed, the which I thought for a moment had not been displeasing to her, and this I imagined, noting somewhat in her eyes when I made mention that I must be gone, yet it may be that I flattered myself. Now when I came out on deck they were busied again in heaving taut the rope, and, until they had made an end, Mistress Madison and I filled the time with such chatter as is wholesome between a man and maid, who have not long met, yet find one another pleasing company. Then, when at last the rope was taut, I went up to the mizzen staging and climbed into the chair, after which some of the men lashed me in very securely. Yet when they gave the signal to haul me to the island, there came for a while no response, and then signs that we could not understand, but no movement to haul me across the weed. At that they unlashed me from the chair, bidding me get out whilst they sent a message to discover what might be wrong. And this they did, and presently there came back word that the big rope had stranded upon the edge of the cliff, and that they must slacken it somewhat at once, the which they did with many expressions of dismay. And so maybe an hour passed, during which we watched the men working at the rope, just where it came down over the edge of the hill, and Mistress Madison stood with us and watched. For it was very terrible, this sudden thought of failure, though it were but temporary, when they were so near to success. Yet at last there came a signal from the island for us to loose the hauling line, the which we did, allowing them to haul across the carrier, and so, in a little while, they signaled back to us to pull in, which having done, we found a letter in the bag lashed to the carrier, in which the boatswain made it plain that he had strengthened the rope and placed fresh chafing gear about it, so that he thought it would be so safe as ever to heave upon, but to put it to a less strain. Yet he refused to allow me to venture across it, saying that I must stay in the ship until we were clear of the weed, for if the rope had stranded in one place, then had it been so cruelly tested that there might be some other points at which it was ready to give. And this final note of the boatswain's made us all very serious, for indeed it seemed possible that it was as he suggested, yet they reassured themselves by pointing out that, 
Like enough, it had been the chafe upon the cliff edge which had frayed the strand, so that it had been weakened before it parted. But I, remembering the chafing gear which the boatswain had put about it in the first instance, felt not so sure, yet I would not add to their anxieties. And so it came about that I was compelled to spend the night in the hulk, but as I followed Mistress Madison into the big saloon, I felt no regret, and had near forgotten already my anxiety regarding the rope. And out on deck there sounded most cheerily the clack of the capstan. You've been listening to The Boats of the Glen Carrig by William Hope Hodgson, read by Paul R. Potts. This audio recording is made available under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 2.5 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org. Links for the project can be found at thepotshouse.org. Music for Chapter 15 is by Samsa from the album Sounds Good on Paper. This work is available at darkwinter.com. Sound effects are taken from the album Thaw, field recordings from Minnesota, available at wanderingear.com.